Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332-4495 for delivery. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about the experiences of the National Guard 119th Agribusiness Development Team in Afghanistan. Joining us in the studio are Colonel Brian Copes, Colonel Sindra Chastain, and Major Sean Gardner, along with uh, reporter Doug Wissing, whose reports you've heard on WFIU for the last 10 months in a series that uh, we called Cultivating Afghanistan. You can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348 or you can send your email to uh, org slash noon edition. All right. Doug, welcome. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. Doug was here without you guys. You guys were over doing your work and Doug was on our program and of course he's been on many reports here, the Cultivating Afghanistan series, I think the, the first one, I, I think, I looked it up. So I know it was in May 2009 and then you, your last report, the homecoming, was um, March 2010. I think I'll let you set this up if you would. Well, I, uh, this team is a remarkable team where it, it was a hand-picked team of people, of soldiers, National Guard soldiers who had agricultural background and their mission was to go out to Afghanistan, out to a particularly volatile, volatile province called Host Province um, and try to work with Afghan farmers as part of a counterinsurgency effort uh, to teach them better techniques and to, to work with them to see projects that they could do. And so uh, it seemed to me it gave us all a great window into a lot of aspects of the war in Afghanistan, um, both combat and development, which is a really important part of what's going on out there. Mm-hmm. So that is indeed what happened and, and what the part I wasn't expecting was uh, how much I enjoyed those folks and how much I uh, enjoyed getting to know them. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to turn first to uh, Colonel Brian Copes. You were the commander. I was uh, the unit, and uh, Colonel Chastain was the deputy commander. But I, I wanted the, for both of you really to talk about you know setting up an operation like this. I mean, going over there to be uh, you know the commander and deputy commander of this agribusiness unit. I and mean, what what kind of expectations did you have going in? That's a great question. And um, we, we were only the fourth agribusiness development team that was formed. Uh, the previous three being from Missouri, number one, Texas, number two, Nebraska, number three. Um, at the time we formed and deployed these agribusiness development teams, it was not much more than an idea. And uh, that posed some interesting challenges for us. I mean, everybody sort of philosophically and conceptually gets their mind around the idea of, sure, it's, it's helpful to improve agriculture. Uh, strategically, uh, the goal was to improve the base of the Afghan economy, which is agriculture. Uh, it's an agrarian society. That's in contrast to Iraq, which had an oil base uh, to their economy. So the long-term way ahead in Afghanistan had to be predicated on improving the base of their economy, which was agriculture. Uh, We had a basic model of how many uh, soldiers we would take and how many of those would be agricultural experts versus a security force, which provided us the uh, mobility, firepower, and force protection to go out and apply the technical skills of the farmers. One of the things we discovered in the first few weeks – was the fact that our mission was in many ways far less about agriculture than it was about counterinsurgency. Our, our mission was winning hearts and minds. That's, that's the uh, – uh, really that phrase has come back in vogue is a, is a reasonably uh, appropriate characterization of the, uh, the goals and objectives. But it was counterinsurgency. Agribusiness were the tools that we brought to the table. But the goal was counterinsurgency and there's three goals and then I'll, I'll stop and take sure. a breath. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, the three goals of counterinsurgency are to separate the population from the enemy, uh, try to minimize the influence of the Taliban um, on the uh, the locals there where we were, 
Uh, second is to connect the population to the legitimate Afghan government, strengthen those connections in terms of binding the society together. And third, to transform the environment in such a way that um, once coalition forces um, have withdrawn, that the Afghans are capable of managing their own affairs. So those were really three, the three goals, but the way we got at those goals was through the application of agribusiness technical skills. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to ask uh, Colonel Chastain uh, sort of the, the same question about your expectations going in and then if you could add a little bit about you know, how – what were the first maybe uh, illustrations that, that things weren't going to be maybe exactly the way you had hoped they'd be? Well, when Colonel Copes and I first got this mission, we actually looked at a map of a topographical map of Afghanistan, and they they kind of gave us a choice of what province we wanted to go to. And we looked at a topographical map, and it looked a little greener in Host Province, <laughs> and that was that was why we chose to go into Host Province. We had no idea at that time what the what the Taliban activity was in that area, what the poppy production was in that area, or any of that. We didn't know anything else other than it looked like things maybe grew there. So. <laughs> Our choice of province was really the result of about 45 seconds of analysis. <laughs> yes. um, so we did find out that Host Province is uh, probably a little bit uh, more agrarian than some of the other uh, areas of Afghanistan. It's more, less desert-like. It's uh, a more temperate environment there. We found that out when we got there. But uh, we didn't know how dangerous it was and the con- type of kinetic activity was going on there. Um, there were a lot of uh, misconceptions that we had uh, going in um, about how difficult things were, how uh, backward uh, the society and uh, their economy is. Um, and uh, the first probably four months we spent in the country just assessing agricultural needs, assessing the government, the provincial government and how we could work with them. Mm-hmm. Major Gardner, what was your role? I was actually operations officer for mm-hmm. the mission, which uh, really focused more on how to protect the ag experts as they went out into the communities and conducted uh, their agricultural assessments, their training objectives they had with local farmers and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, there are 64 people on the team, I think, from what I've read on the website. 16 were experts in agriculture, yes. agribusiness. Did any of you know each other beforehand? Oh, oh, yes. You're all part of the same unit Actually, uh, most of us knew each other. Uh, we didn't know some of the, you know, we're obviously a little older. We didn't know some of the young kids that made up some of the force protection team. But uh, most of, uh, several of us came from the Joint Forces headquarters in Indianapolis and we knew each other. We worked together. Actually, Brian and I have worked together for probably 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Sean, did you know Sean? Oh, on? yes. Yeah. So your role was to uh, was on the military side. More the tactical side of the mm-hmm. operation. Yes. Mm-hmm. I want to ask uh, for a definition of kinetic activity. It's just not something we <laughs> always hear. That is the remarkably <clears throat> bland name that they use for when people are shooting you and trying to blow you up. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. that's what I thought, but... Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the polite speak we use when we're talking in public. There are kinetic activities and non-kinetic, and the um, <laughs> Department of Defense would describe host province as a non-permissive environment, which is their polite euphemism for a really dangerous place to work. <laughs> the uh, host province, and, and <clears throat> we're, we're pronouncing it in the um, mm-hmm. Pashtoe, which is host province, but if you try to look it up, it begins with a KH. So if you're trying to look it up, K-H-O-W-S-T. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it had the distinction out of the 34 provinces in Afghanistan, uh, host province had the highest level of kinetic activity, primarily roadside bombs, improvised, improvised explosive devices of any of the 34 provinces in Afghanistan. We, we didn't know that when we looked at this green province on the map. Mm-hmm. And, and what you'll notice, one thing about host province that a lot of the surrounding provinces don't have it. The, uh, the weather there allows for fighting year-round, opposed to some of the higher elevations where uh, the snows come in and the uh, anti-Afghan forces move down to the low ground where they can continue their, uh, their kinetic operations against coalition forces. So we happen to have in most areas where uh, the fighting would begin to wane in the winter, it actually started to maybe pick up a little bit as new fighters moved into warmer terrain where they could continue their operations. Oh, okay, so I have to ask this. When these guys decided, oh, hey, this looks like a nice green place to go, was there any discussion that said, well, this kind of an operation might be easier to accomplish if it wasn't such a kinetic area? If it was an easier place to do business, they would have sent civilians. Huh. 
that's that's the reason they sent uh, soldier farmers into uh-huh. this particular location. I see. Yeah. Uh, the, the effort clearly being to provide a, a certain stability uh, so that all the other organs of governance uh, could begin to flourish, the health care system, education system, transportation, mm-hmm. public utilities. Um, again, the mission was counterinsurgency. We just used agribusiness as a tool. But, uh, where Host Province is located, it, it actually juts out into Pakistan. Uh, our, our base camp was uh, 12 miles to the south and 19 miles to the east from the Pakistan border. We could see it standing on our front porch. So uh, b- because of that, it, it is a um, uh, historic byway, uh, pathway into the interior of Afghanistan. So uh, there were many infiltration routes for the Taliban uh, in the province we, we operated in. And I don't think we would even now change our minds about what we know now versus what we knew then. I don't think we'd change our minds about where we went. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348. And the web address, if you want to send email, is wfiu.org slash noon edition. I know many of you out there have heard uh, Douglas Wissing's reports cultivating Afghanistan over the last 10 months. And we have uh, three of the people who he was – in Afghanistan with who were doing the work of the uh, agribusiness development team there in Afghanistan. They're with us today and we're talking about their experience over there. All right. Here's a message and it begins. This is uh, Rahman Arman. First of all, accept my wife's – I might need a little help with it. Bednaz. Thank you, Zamani, and my regards and appreciation for your great services for both great nations. I have three questions. Would you like to – we'll do them one at a time. Uh, Number one, I understand that the IU Afghan language and cultural seminars were helpful to you in the field. If this is correct, please tell us an interesting experience that you had in the field related to language and or culture. What a great question. I'd like to know the same thing. I think anytime you can go in and, and even if you, you do a terrible job of trying to reach out to them, to reach out to someone in their own language really lets them know that, you know, I, I'm truly here and I'm vestedly interested in your well-being and, and your future and the future of your people in your country. So I think just that small token of reaching out in their native language to them really started to break down barriers for us right off the bat, let us just start open doors of communication, uh, though it might not be uh, – as effective as we might want it to be uh, with our broken Pashto, it still helped uh, break down uh, social and cultural barriers that let us move forward with our mission. Rahman and Beknaz were part of our cultural education here at IU before we went. We spent uh, 15 days with them uh, uh, learning culture and some language before we went. It was extremely beneficial to us and we appreciate it. Uh, You know, basic, you're not not going to learn their language in two weeks, but just being able to use some agricultural terms, being able to uh, greet people in uh, in Pashto was very helpful to us. I can imagine. I want to... um uh, just uh, underscore that, that a sincere effort, um, you honor them by the use of their language, uh, mm-hmm. no matter how bad you butcher it. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank um, Rahman Arman and, and his uh, assistance to us in the, uh, in the language and culture seminar and, and uh, tell a brief anecdote. Um, our security force, we took my entire team of 64 and our security force got a five-day crash course. The rest of us slow learners got a full 15 days of it. At the end of five days, our uh, steely-eyed killer infantrymen, uh, you know, who are as macho as anybody you want to find and are are preparing themselves to go to combat literally, at the end of that five days as we were presenting the diplomas and Rachman as their instructor was standing beside me as they came down the line to receive their diplomas without the slightest hesitation – Every one of these steely-eyed young killers came up and warmly embraced him in a typical Afghan man hug. Big deal for them, uh, I mean, in terms of of cultural uh, immersion. And, um, I mean, that was a very tangible and visible sign of the impact. Um, And and our guys, even, you know, the youngest kid we had, 19 years old, got that. They had been culturally sensitized. They knew enough words to say hello and thank you and, if necessary, stop, put your hands up and and some appropriate security terms. Um, But but even those young soldiers who in many ways – interact with, with the public far more than we did. We interacted with a very discreet audience inside buildings, meeting with Afghan leaders and talking deep thoughts about agriculture and governance while our security force stood outside uh, with their weapons at the ready in various postures. And uh, it seems subtle, but they understood 
that they were ambassadors and they sent messages. And what we wanted to make sure was they weren't sending a different message outside to the crowd that gathered spontaneously than what I was trying to send or what we were trying to send inside in our discussions. And they learned very quickly uh, how to graduate their posture from, you know, very hard posture to a little softer to weapons slung to glasses off to smile on your face, you know, so you could – engage, even non-verbally, they would engage with the populace. And so they were critical ambassadors um, at influencing the local population so that when word came out about this agricultural effort, the people were already generally favorably disposed to this particular group of folks that they'd been interacting with. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, To touch a little bit more on the cultural aspect of of this uh, question, um, I'm interested as a woman – what the life was like uh, in this province for for women and how that varies from our culture. Well, it it, it varies extremely from our culture. Uh, even even me as a woman very rarely met Afghan women. Uh, some provincial leaders I did meet. Um, uh, most in actually host province the the culture is even uh, more conservative than than say in Kabul or some of the uh, bigger cities in Afghanistan it was much more conservative you rarely saw a woman and if you did she wore a full burqa uh, and you never saw her face um, so um, I didn't meet that many Afghan women I was treated with utmost respect and and the same as the rest of these guys I, I wasn't treated any differently uh, but Afghan women uh, really are not allowed to work outside of the household. Uh, and if they are outside of the, the walls of their compound, they're in a full burqa. Mm-hmm. So it, that was difficult for me to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I wasn't there to change their culture. Right. So, uh, you know, I can only set an example from what I do. Talk briefly about the outreach efforts, though, the project. Well, the project, we... we we tried to get women involved in some of the projects uh, that would benefit them, especially widows that have no source of income. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we talked about widows, uh, the men would listen because they realized that was a source of instability in their country is that, that women or widows don't have a, a source of income and can't work. Uh, if you wanted to talk about just uh, giving their wives some extra money, they really uh, weren't mm-hmm. too interested in, in, in delving into that area. So what we tried to work with was poultry or some gardening, those kind of projects that would help in uh, in orchards that they would have within the walls of their compound that women could continue to work with and maybe have a little extra spending money for buying the, the children things and, and uh, food on the table. Go ahead. Oh, um, tell them about when we were with the sub-governor. I can't recall which, which uh, district we were in and you brought up the Widows Project and he said if I uh, – if we get the women's uh, – I think it was it was poultry we were talking about. If the women get rich off of this, then they'll find a husband and then we won't have this problem anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's carry on with this question, shall we? Um, it, uh, the second part of this is how, do you, how did you find the Afghan people? Do they want to improve their agricultural skills? Were they interested in your training to learn modern agricultural methods? And what did they think about the new equipment, tools or methods? And he, he finishes here. May God bless you and may he continue to bless our great country. Best yours, Armand. Um, I think – am I answering this one? Yeah. OK. <laughs> you can start. I think uh, definitely th- all the Afghans we met were uh, – wanted to learn, wanted to get better, were deeply interested in whatever we could teach them. Uh, their only fear was that being involved with us would cause them further harm because it creates – they become a target if they're associated with us too much. Right. So uh, that was the issue we had to deal with. Every Afghan we met wanted to learn more, wanted to be better at, 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 in agriculture and wanted whatever tool and techniques we could teach them. They were hungry for knowledge mm-hmm. and very intelligent people just don't have the education system to, uh, you know, they're probably college educated over there, maybe, uh, you know, uh, less than high school education here. Mm-hmm. Their education system is, is weak and, and they know it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. But they're hungry for knowledge and, and very intelligent people. What kind of equipment were you able to bring to share? We simple things because again, we don't, they don't have power. They don't have a source of. Uh, they can't afford uh, fuel. Some other things. So we brought them, you know, hand seeders, uh, um, tools and shovels, things a, like that. As a guiding principle, any solutions uh, that we began to develop had to be 
simple, low cost, and sustainable by the Afghans themselves. I mean, we can throw money and technology at it, but that is not a sustainable strategy. So um, uh, she mentioned a couple. Um, we started with very rudimentary best practices like a three-hour block of instruction to the agricultural extension agents who then transferred that to the individual farmers on how to prune fruit trees. Every family has a dozen or 15 fruit trees, uh, but they don't manage them well. There's no good pest management. So at the end of their training, we provided them with a simple equipment set, a tree saw, a grafting knife, a metal bucket, two pounds of hydrated lime and a paintbrush. That's what they paint the trunk with, makes it taste bad, keeps the bugs away from it. Um, we're not going to provide them that equipment forever. But what it does is introduce really the important thing we introduced was knowledge, not only of the, of the technique but the use of these tools. Those tools are readily available. There are farm supply stores. So we bought Afghan locally whenever and wherever we could. Um, if, if our solution could not be readily replicated, then it was not really a solution. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was very simple things. And then um, uh, brief it this way, and, and as we mentioned, knowledge is something the Taliban can't take away once we've left it there. They can't come in in the middle of the night and blow it up or burn it down. That knowledge will be self-sustaining vertically. Now, that's a fancy way of saying the guy we taught, the farmer that got taught, will teach his sons and he'll teach his grandsons. That knowledge will be transferred vertically through the family. To some extent, the knowledge will be self-propagating laterally. Again, a fancy way of saying that single farmer is going to teach his neighbors. His neighbors are going to peek over the clot wall and go, hey, Ajmal, how come your apples are better than I've ever seen? How come your plums are bigger this year? So those techniques are going to be shared. And once his neighbor says, I see what you did with that tree saw and that lime, I'm now going to invest a little bit of money because I'm informed now and I'm going to make a rational business decision to go invest a little money at the farm store. He wouldn't have done that before because he simply didn't know the value mm -hmm. of, of that simple investment and what he would get in return for it. And what he, about he couldn't oh. afford the risk either. Correct. And I think once we showed them that there was value in this, he was willing at that point to, to spend his own money on it. Uh, another thing that we reached out to was Sheikh Zayed University there, which is the local university in Host Province. And I think that was a, a starting point there to really start to uh, share the importance of education and what we can do to help uh, build their education educational facilities there in the country. All right. As a gardener, I have to ask, how was the soil quality? Was, it, uh, was that a source of concern for you or something that you guys took on as, a, as an issue? Um, the soil quality really wasn't that bad. It, it had very little organic matter because they use everything. Um, mm -hmm. So we uh, did some simple techniques on teaching them uh, um, composting and things like that and reintroducing organic matter back into the soil. Uh, but other than that, they, they overuse fertilizer, and they, but there's no to soil test kits uh, available for them to know how much fertilizer they use. So one of the things we did was provide soil test kits to the agricultural extension agents so they could be available for farmers to test their soil and know how much fertilizer they actually needed. Mm -hmm. the, the, the key is water management. If you can irrigate it, it'll grow. Really mm -hmm. yeah. interesting. Very mm -hmm. interesting. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. I want to remind uh, our listeners that uh, this, our program today – um, is uh, we, we have three guests, Colonel Brian Copes, Colonel Sindra Chastain, and Major Sean Gardner. They all have been featured in Douglas Whistling's series, Cultivating Afghanistan. If you want to know more, you can go to the WFIU website, WFIU.org, and find all of Doug's stories that are archived there. Uh, I've listened to several of them again over the last week or so, and uh, I guarantee you, you'll find some really good listening and you'll learn more even more than you're going to learn. You're going to learn a ton on the show today, but you're going to learn even more by going to all of those reports. So you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, 
as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And in our studio today, we have guests uh, Brian Copes, Colonel Brian Copes, Colonel Sandra Chastain and Major Sean Gardner, along with a reporter Doug Wissing. That's your rank, I guess. Now, reporter. <laughs> it was. It was <laughs> good enough. Embedded journalist. Embedded journalist. Mm-hmm. Doug Wissing. We're talking about uh, Doug's series, cultivating Afghanistan, and and more than that, the experiences of the National Guard, one nineteenth agribusiness development team uh, that was in Afghanistan. If you have questions or comments, phone us at eight five five zero eight one one or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your uh, email by going to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. I want to talk about this uh, email that came in. It's an emailer referring to uh, a video that just was released, a controversial helicopter attack on a group of people in Iraq in 2007. Uh, Some civilians were were shot, including a Reuters photographer. Um, and I know that in one of the reports that, that Doug did, there was um, a you, – you had – I think, Colonel, you were on the report. It, there was an issue in, in which um, you went to talk to some farmers and there had been an attack the night before, some kinetic activity the night before. <laughs> and uh, two people from the village had been killed. So I know that there are dangers and there are you know, in- incidents that occur. So if you could maybe respond to you know, this incident that happened, this particular incident happened in uh, – that the email is referring to in 2007 in Iraq. But you also had to deal with some of the same kinds of That's, issues. That, that, and I've seen that on the news. Um, and, and this isn't just the party line. We grew very close uh, with many, many of the, uh, the Afghan people we dealt with. And, any loss of civilian life is regrettable and, and it is unintended. Uh, but, but as a practical matter, from a counterinsurgency point of view, that is one of the reasons that General McChrystal implemented new rules of engagement, uh, which severely limit um, the parameters within which the military can engage in a populated area. Because um, at the end of the day, <clears throat> using uh, uh, insurgent math, uh, you may believe and have actionable intelligence that you kill two bad guys that are legitimately bad guys and, and you know it with, with absolute certainty. But the population in that village or that district will not necessarily know they were bad guys. And you may think that you have killed two enemies but you have probably created a couple of hundred in the process. Um, early on in May and June of last year, um, the brigade combat team that we were partnered with embarked on a, um, uh, an information operations campaign to simply factually present the disparity between the number of civilian casualties produced by coalition forces versus those produced inadvertently by the Taliban. The month of May is an example. If I remember the numbers, we had one civilian casualty, regrettable. There were 91 civilian casualties created by the Taliban either through indiscriminate shooting or the majority through uh, indiscriminate use of roadside bombs where the civilians would drive over and, and, and be killed. And we simply thought if we presented that, that the local media, radio and TV would pick up on it and go, what an outrage. Do you see how terrible the Taliban are? I mean, sincerely in an effort to try and turn the people against the Taliban. It gained zero traction. Um, and, and the only conclusion we could draw from that is that at the end of the day, they expect the Taliban to be ruthless and sloppy. And that's just – that's the way they do business because they're sloppy about it. They have no such expectation for the coalition forces in general and the United States in particular. Um, we are expected with our vast technology uh, to, to be on target precisely all the time and we have no margin for error. And, and you can argue whether you think that's fair or not but it is the reality of the environment within which we operate. Mm-hmm. The, the incident you're talking about and, and we uh, – we had spent <clears throat> some months setting the conditions to go visit uh, the most volatile of the 13 districts in our province. And a district is equivalent to a county mm-hmm. in terms of political subdivision. 
and uh, the district governor, the senior uh, political official in charge of that district, um, was a supporter of ours. He had seen the uh, the benefits in some of his neighboring districts of the application of our resources. He convinced some of the village elders from the three most adjacent villages to uh, to meet with us and discuss the possibility of beginning some agricultural projects. We flew in there because it was just it was too dangerous to drive in. And we landed, and uh, as soon as we landed, we got a briefing that some six hours before there had been a nighttime raid in the closest village and two civilians were shot. So, of course, they wanted no discussion of agriculture. Um, They spent an hour uh, in very passionate, raised voice uh, dialogue with the infantry uh, company that was stationed at the uh, small American base there. Very unusual. We had lots and lots of meetings, and it was very unusual for the Afghan men to raise their voices. And uh, so they were they were very animated and passionate and rightfully so from their perspective. It didn't matter that we had certainty there was actionable intelligence. These were bad guys. That was not their view of it and they were not going to be dissuaded to the contrary. And so after an hour of that, the infantry finally left and at the district governor's urging, um, he asked them would they please stay and simply listen to us for a few minutes. So that's – the extraordinarily tense atmosphere that we walk into in this, you know, probably eight by twelve room with about twenty people stacked inside of it, uh, most of them angry Afghan men, and um, the the district governor began to tee things up and uh, simply described who we were and what we were, and and I'm, and I'm here in the midst of this going, what do I say? <clears throat> How do I simply move past this particular moment? And, and, and all I knew to do simply was, was at the end of his dialogue, I, I got up and I went to each of the Afghan men, the eldest being closest to me and then moving down the line by, by hierarchy, um, simply shook their hand and told them I was very sorry for their loss. Um, and, and that took a lot of the tension out of the atmosphere. <clears throat> and I said, I know this is a bad time to talk business and perhaps we will be able to talk again in the future. Uh, and I appreciate your patience for staying to speak with us during this very difficult time. But I would like to share with you some of the ways we have been able to help farmers in the other districts here in Host Province and just describe to them very briefly the kinds of animal husbandry projects, soil testing projects, orchard projects, and, and then left them, left them with that. So all I know is we tried to plant seeds and set conditions um, for the team that followed us to pick up where we left off. But, I mean, that's, uh, that, that's the strategic view of civilian casualties and the impact of the counterinsurgency. And then that's a more personal one-on-one experience with that very thing in the midst and in, in the course of doing the mission we were given. Mm-hmm. I just think that shows uh, the new soldier on the battlefield today, not only a soldier, but he's a soldier statesman. Mm-hmm. And he has to be able to bridge that line between when do I shoot and when do I step back and reach out with the olive branch and uh, and make friends uh, in the situation that they're in. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to the phones. We have a, a couple of phone calls. John is first. John? Uh, thanks for an interesting program today. And sure. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was reading a couple of days ago in the little national magazines that 90% of the population in Afghanistan are illiterate, and almost 75% of the people don't even know how to use a toothbrush. I wonder if you could comment on that and give us some idea of the population that, that you're working with and the population that, that is there. Uh, and that's a great, a great comment and a great question. I think uh, what we found there is really a lot of hands-on demonstration in our training uh, uh, activities was probably the best way we addressed some of those illiteracy rates. As well, I know that uh, a lot of billboard campaigns are popular over there, and we, we set up our own billboard campaign to get the word out on some of the agricultural training we're doing. Uh, you know, we're, uh, the cliche is uh, a picture's worth a thousand words, but we, we took that cliche and ran with it and really used the opportunity to get our message out in uh, visual effects uh, much more than we would in, say, uh, newspapers or writing. Mm-hmm. My question is, 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 is it a good use of resources to focus on the agricultural part as opposed to working on the what literacy first? <clears throat> Well, we are working on the U.S. government. That wasn't our mission, but the U.S. government is working on on literacy and education. Uh, We have built many schools in Afghanistan, thousands probably. And most children do go to school now. Um, Maybe some of your your adults don't read and and will never read, but the kids that are in school now are learning to read. And I'd say probably – I, I'm guessing here, but 80 to 90 percent of the children in Host Province do go to school now. 
and and they didn't before. So it and and girls, there are sc- girls' schools that have been built also. So uh, the U.S. government is working on education, and uh, but it just wasn't our mission. All right, thanks, John. Appreciate the call. All right, eight five five zero eight one one eight. 877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Let's go to Wayne next. Wayne? Hi. We hear that the major agricultural crop in Afghanistan is opium poppies. Um, let me ask, have you found a, a profitable alternative to poppies? And what would that alternative be? Uh, John, that's a great question. Um, as, as a practical matter, host province where we were assigned had been uh, uh, validated poppy-free for five years. Out of the 34 provinces in Afghanistan, only five of them are actually engaged in large-scale opium poppy production. Um, Helmand, Kandahar, Masri Sharif, Badakhshan, and I don't remember what the fifth is. Um, it, it is a profitable cash crop. It is a very rational business decision for the farmers to grow that. Uh, it's a crop that is well suited to that uh, arid environment. It doesn't require a lot of farmer inputs in terms of fertilizer or water. It's very easy to cultivate. Uh, so it's just a pragmatic uh, uh, decision. You know, my father here in Indiana uh, will decide whether he's going to plant uh, um, beans, corn, or uh, wheat this year. Uh, in Afghanistan, they have the option of poppy as well. Um, there's another incentive uh, that causes them to, uh, to grow poppies, and that is the simple fact that the Taliban offer credit, uh, and the Afghan government does not. There is no effective banking and commerce system that provides farm credit mm-hmm. for a farmer in the spring to simply go buy seeds and fertilizers like our farmers do here. Uh, the farmer, local farmer has no money to buy uh, wheat seed, but the Taliban gives him money uh, in, uh, for the inputs necessary to grow poppy. Um, it is one of the more profitable crops if for no other reason than the farmer knows at the time he puts it in the ground in the spring, he already has a buyer for it at the end of the season. Uh, again, it is, it is a rational business decision uh, given the context uh, that, that they're operating within. Uh, but where we were at, the, uh, the staple crop by and large is uh, wheat. Uh, and then where we were, they were able to double crop a second season in the year, which was primarily corn. Um, out of the entire country of Afghanistan, which is roughly the size of the state of Texas, only 12% of the land is, is arable or tillable and only about uh, uh, half of that 12% is irrigated. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it, it's challenging at best uh, to grow any crops at all. So that, that was a long-winded answer, but that's uh, the, the whole poppy issue is a little more complex and there have certainly been discussions of eradication efforts. Just go in and cut the poppy down and burn it up. Wonderful. You solved the drug problem, but – you left the farmer destitute. You now just created thousands more people who are unhappy uh, because neither the coalition forces in the international community or the Afghan government left them with a livelihood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there are second and third order effects that have to be considered. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Here's another email that has come in. It says, it must be incredibly difficult to do business in a culture so different from our concepts of fairness and rule-abiding citizenry, <laughs> i.e. all the corruption. How hard has it been to suppress U.S. ways of tackling problems and figure out the system there? Um, I don't know if that, he, whoever asked the question, that was a very good question because it is very difficult to deal with the corruption issue and the complexity of it. Uh, you know, Sometimes if you really think about corruption, if, if a guy makes $200 a year, which is probably I think 400, yeah. 200 to 400 is their annual income yeah. average um, and he's got a family of 10, uh, maybe corruption is a little justified sometimes if they can't feed their family. Mm-hmm. So you've got to look at the, the, all the effects of corruption and, and what the reason for the corruption is. We're trying to tackle corruption in the government. I think that is where it's starting from. Um, And the U.S. government has a lot of rules in effect to keep corruption from entering into U.S. government contracts. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist and you're going to stop it completely. And it it, it is rampant and it's a a very difficult issue. Go ahead. ahead. I think one way to help tamp down corruption is to get them out of the survival mentality – uh, a lot of them aren't thinking about next week or a month from now. They're thinking about how do I get through the day and then how do I get through tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And in someone's put in that situation, I think they tend to uh, 
be persuaded maybe to do something a little corrupt so that they can better their way of life and their family. So I think with a strong to revitalize the agricultural economy there, keep people out of the survival mentality and into a mentality where they can really do some long-term planning for themselves and their families, that will help uh, dissuade some of the uh, feelings of, of corruption. And, and What we think of as corruption here is, for, like, for example, kinship hires, that is a way of – that's culture there and mm-hmm. that is the the acceptable way of doing business and you have to incorporate that into your thinking um, even though we may not think that that's uh, – we think that's corruption or um, uh, doing things wrong. Uh, you have to consider that when you're doing everything that hiring your brother to do a project isn't corruption in their minds and you're probably not going to change that. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you were there long enough to kind of get the hang of some of these – um, social rules that aren't, of course, native to us? Yeah, yeah, I think probably about the time we felt like we were hitting our stride, it was time to come home. I wondered about that, yeah. 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 And, and can you ever completely learn another culture? No. Uh, probably not. It, it would be very hard for an Afghan to be plopped down in Indiana and understand our culture in, in 10 months too. So, right. But I've shared a couple of things talking with my family, my father a lot. The longer I was there, the more I recognize we are far more alike than we are different. People are people. Business is business. Politics is politics. Um, just communicating with them across the table in terms – and recognizing that every time we sat down to sip chai tea and smile at each other, it was a business negotiation. He's going to push me for as much as he can get. I'm going to get as much as I can. I mean it's just, we recognize that inherently. And, and the good news is their mannerisms are just like ours. You know, they gesticulate when they talk. I mean, you can look at their posture, um, their countenance, the tone and, and uh, cadence of their their speech. You can tell when they're happy, sad, bored, or interested. So, uh, now, now the reciprocal to that is they probably read us better than we read them because they're culturally far more attuned to those kinds of cues. But relative to corruption, though, I just I want to illustrate a point. Uh, early on in one of our visits, we were being briefed by the military higher headquarters we worked for and an earnest young major was describing to us the development projects in the uh, province. We're building schools here and here and some roads here and a couple of clinics there. And I said, how is that determined? What what body makes that decision? And he leaned in and said, oh, sir, it's all corrupt. Every one of these district governors wants the project to come to their district because they're going to get the contract of their uncle and all their families are going to do the construction work. And I said, hey, 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 that's the way we do it in the United <laughs> States. You know, ask any small town mayor county commissioner. OK, now our rules are different, but philosophically – you know, every elected official is expected to advocate for their constituency. Right. So, I mean, philosophically, it, it was no different. And corruption is more a matter of degree than an extreme, whether it is or it is not. It, mm-hmm. there's, there's a cost of doing business. We know that inherently here in the United States, but we kind of accept it because it's the cost of doing business. It's only when somebody gets far outside, you know, the accepted parameters that you suddenly flinch and go, hey, that's not right. Right. Doug, did you have something you wanted to add? Oh, I think it ties into what Colonel Copes was just talking about, which I, I have heard State Department officials talk about functional and non-functional corruption mm-hmm. in regards to Afghanistan. And they used an example of non-functional corruption would be where a high government official takes millions of dollars and sticks it into a, an account in Dubai. And there's lots and lots of that. But functional corruption in this rubric would relate to a policeman who is taken 50 cents for not writing the ticket – because he's got a family of 12 back home and he's making – what's a cop make? A hundred bucks a month? About that. Mm-hmm. You know, and so in you – know, and then the State Department official went on to talk about, well, we're trying to do salary adjustments so that they actually have a living wage and you know, more complex ways. And, and it is a, an entire culture of corruption mm-hmm. that is not very functional right now. And, and, and another illustration just on, on that topic because it's a, an interesting one. Um, Anecdotally, we were told the story of a police chief in a district uh, who it was determined was on the take. He was uh, siphoning off some of the gas money that was uh, sent down from the national government um, and, and, and or he was, he was uh, uh, using some of that. Uh, well, they got him fired. Well, what they found out was he was using some of that money to buy food for the police officers who lived in the district center. They lived there at the station most of the time. Well, they now had a clean police chief who wasn't taking anything, uh, but they had a mass exodus of a dozen of the police officers because they weren't getting fed anymore. So, you know, you look at it a little more pragmatically and go, well, 
how do you balance that? As, as, as Doug articulated, how do you balance uh, what's functional corruption versus non-functional corruption sure. just to compensate for the immaturity of many of the government institutions that they have that, are, that they're working to, uh, to strengthen? And I know Doug did a report on corruption and, and I think – I'm not sure if – it might have been you, Colonel uh, Chastain, that was – that talk, told a story about paying certain people – and paying contractors and the contractors, maybe the money wasn't getting where it was supposed to be and so you made the decision to pay the workers and that didn't work out so well. And, and I remember the end of the story was you would, had left like $2.4 million in Afghani money with the contractor that he was supposed to go out and, and pay. Could you relate that story? Well, you know, part of our job is to connect the people to the government. So we, it, it's really nice if we can get the government to, to actually do – uh, the payments or whatever, but we couldn't always do that. So we tried to pay the workers ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, it got to be where it was a very lengthy process to pay. We're out in a very dangerous area for a very long time to pay all of the workers. And we actually had an IED set up on our, on our, on our exodus route while we were paying these workers because we've been there for so long. Um, it was a it was a bad thing for a, for an Afghan man in a motorcycle that went over that IED. It was a good thing for us because it didn't affect us, uh, other than we got out of there in a hurry. So it it, it was a dangerous situation because we tried to pay them ourselves to make sure that the workers got all the money. Then again, we weren't even sure that all of these workers lined up were actually the workers on the project either. So uh, we decided maybe it's just best to leave that job to the contractors but tell the workers that this is the money you're supposed to get from this project. Here's what you're supposed to be paid so that they can keep the contractor honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, it was uh, – and, and so tell them the method of payment which is my favorite part. I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the tra- should I say it? I'll say it. The, the traditional way of paying Afghan contractors up to very recently uh, was you took a suitcase or the, the preferred method was in a big green garbage bag. You would take 2.4 million Afghanis, which is the currency, to the gate and in some cases throw it over the fence. But I think in this particular case – no, I think it was over the fence. It might have been the green garbage bag over the fence. It I, may not be true, but it makes a much better story. I, it's, it's much more picturesque. I, I'm yes. trying to figure out how you got him to sign for it, but you know. Yeah. You know, and as she described, I mean, we, we thought to ourselves initially, we've cut out all the middlemen. The cash went directly from my soldier's hands into that worker's hands. But then you realize that after we've driven away, the village elder rounds up the 100 men out of the five or 600 men in the village, the 100 that he selected to benefit from this project – and he's going to take his stipend. Every one of you give me 10 percent of what you just got paid mm-hmm. and they will willingly pay it. Um, and it all depends on whether they have trust and confidence in him. Is he going to work for the greater good of the village? And he will. You know, and if 10 percent of that slides into his pocket, they're OK with that mm-hmm. because they still benefited. I mean call it corruption as a technical legal matter. It probably is. Taxes. It, <laughs> it, 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 I mean it, it is what it is. And so I mean we belabor the point a little bit just to provide a richer context for the very black and white way that we tend to view corruption. Right. Um, it's, it's a much more complex and nuanced uh, environment. Right. Do you have any more email? I do. Okay. Uh, this one asks, to what extent has it been possible for you to develop productive, genuine working relationships with your Afghani counterparts on these projects? Without continued direct support from your unit, do you believe that agricultural developments improvements can be sustained? You talked a little bit about sustainability and the kinds of things you were doing. Can you uh, elaborate on the uh, uh, relationships perhaps? Well, um, we established, uh, I think, good relationships with the director of agriculture, which was our – which is really our point of entry into the provincial government. Uh, we tried to develop the director of agriculture and his employees – he probably had 30 to 40 employees – that worked in the province in agriculture. So we established relationships with them and I think they were good relationships. They could call us. We could call mm-hmm. them. We could talk and we educated them. And those are – again, education is something that the Taliban can't take away. We worked on educating them on better uh, techniques that they could then in turn take to the farmers in the province. And we also worked uh, especially with the, uh, the eight or nine um, – extension agents, agricultural extension agents that worked in the provinces Mm. or in the districts so that uh, they were better equipped to deal with farmers and to help farmers 
develop better techniques. And I think we had good relationships with them. Uh, again, they're a little leery of working with us sometimes and being seen with us because they can become a target. But I think we had really good relationships with them. We also worked with Sheikh Zayed University in their agricultural uh, efforts in helping develop education, their educational program. And again, all of these things we started hopefully are going to improve over time and are sustainable over time. We talked a lot about agriculture. What about animal husbandry? I know that's kind of your specialty. Animal husbandry, most farmers in, in uh, the province have a s- small herds of two or three goats, goats yeah. a donkey or two, a sheep or two, and some dairy cattle. Uh, we, veterinary services are few and far between. So we, we did uh, institute some training <clears throat> on uh, just basic animal husbandry techniques, giving vaccinations, worming, those kind of things. And I think that the farmers love that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay, we have less than two minutes to go, and I want to give each of you the opportunity <laughs> to – to just tell me, I mean, in the year that you were there, I mean, what, what was the biggest difference when you left from when you got there? How are things on the ground? Major? Uh, yeah. I, you know, I spent uh, – had the opportunity to spend 2002 in Host Province in a very kinetic opportunity and uh, had the chance to go back this time on an, on an agricultural development team. And uh, it was very heartwarming to, uh, to be on this type of mission from the first one I was on and just the opportunity to interact with the local people on a completely different level than I had before and see the benefit uh, right away of what we were implementing there and how it was changing lives uh, daily and how they were going to pass that on to their to future generations is really a legacy that uh, we were able to leave there uh, just in our short time. But it's also uh, something that's going to grow on for the next four years as Indiana uh, continues its uh, – uh, providing agricultural development teams to host province. So just to be a part of this legacy of, of uh, educating the Afghan people to better their way of life and their future and the future of their country has definitely been something that uh, has not only helped change that culture, but it's helped change me as a person as well to be able to reach out in this regard. Okay. We are out of time. I want to recommend that all of you, uh, now all of our listeners, go to the WFIU.org website, go to the Cultivating Afghanistan series by Douglas Wissing and just learn more as, uh, you know, at your leisure because there are several. I don't know how many pieces you did, Doug, 12, 14? 25. 25, yeah. 25 pieces that you can uh, learn more about. I want to thank Colonel Brian Copes, Colonel Cinder Chastain, and Major Sean Gardner, as well as Doug Wissing and Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero, Ariana Prothero, and Mike Pashkash, our engineer. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery.